This is Your Working Life, a podcast that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. I'm a speaker and a career and executive coach, and today I am so excited to welcome Debbie Millman to the show. Debbie will talk about what she learned during conversations with the world's most creative people. Debbie, welcome. Thank you. It's so wonderful to be here. It's such an honor. Well, listen, the honor back at you. I've got a little fangirl moment here. I'm really excited to be speaking with you. What a treat for me. And I have to tell you, your book is just delicious. Why Design Matters, Conversations with the World's Most Creative People. And it is a hit list of some really awesome individuals. So my, my first question, how, how did you come up with this idea of interviewing all of these iconic luminaries in, in the space of Why Design Matters? Well, these interviews are a collection of some of my very best interviews while making my podcast for the last 17 years. And uh, the idea came from my agent. She thought it was time. It was at around the 15-year anniversary mark that she came up with the idea. She thought it was something that would be a wonderful legacy for the show to have a collection of, of some of my best interviews. And so I spent... Uh, just about two years going through all of my archives, having all of my shows transcribed, reading through them all, and then ultimately choosing the very best that I could uh, excerpt a bit because they're not they're not the full interviews that would be that would have allowed me to maybe include five in the entire book. Yeah, how long yeah. I, I end up talking with people, um, and and then uh, went upon the effort of looking for beautiful, soulful photographs I could include as well. And the result is this five-pound coffee table of interviews and photographs and quotes and essays. And, And a work of art at that. Now, you and I both would agree that a good interview is much harder than it looks. So tell our global audience how you prepare for an interview and what does that look like for you? I tend to relentlessly prepare. There's a part of me that I think the more I prepare, the more secure I feel going into an interview. Um, So I don't just wing it. I know a lot of people like to go into interviews. I've heard it a lot uh, where people say, oh, I'm I'm not going to do a lot of research. I'm not going to prepare, over-prepare. I just want to come to it really naturally and have a conversation. And that's great for, for people that have that kind of confidence. I don't. I like to thoroughly prepare. I like to read almost everything I can get my hands on that any guest has written. Um, I like to watch any videos where they've presented or talked or interviews with other people they've conducted, mostly in an effort to really get to know the trajectory of their life, their origin story, and be able to ask them original questions that they haven't been asked a million times and, and really engage with them in an original conversation. Well, so I, I I really go very deep in my research and and spend about a week or or ten days or so preparing for for each interview I do. Well, well done you, and it shows. And and I can tell having having listened to the interviews and been a beneficiary of your expertise, I feel th- that the um, the interviewees feel deeply understood and appreciated. There's the sense that you've heard them and you've validated them, and that's palpable to the listener. 
Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to to know that you feel yeah, that way. <laughs> absolutely. As I said, it's a bit of a fangirl moment for me. So thank you for letting me letting me admire you and learn from you. But I'd love to talk specifically about this book and, and design matters. So there's so much that you unpacked with the myriad of guests, and I'll just name a few so our listening audience has a, a sense of of um, the, the gravitas that this book has. Brene Brown, Eve Ensler, Malcolm Gladwell, Ira Glass, Seth Godin, Simon Sinek. I mean, I mean, just several of many, many uh, incredible minds. But the common denominator there is is design. So fill me in on that. Well, when I started the show in 2005, it was on an internet radio network. It was Mm -hmm. a live radio show that was broadcast on the internet. And very shortly after I started to broadcast the show, because it was a live show, uh, people that weren't sitting at their computers when I was doing the show wanted to have alternatives in the way that they could listen. And so at that point, I started to upload the shows to what was then iTunes. And this was before there was a podcast section. Yeah, yeah. But But that's how people were able to listen whenever they wanted, sort of on demand. And at the time, you know, it wasn't something that I was thinking I'd be doing 17 years later. It was really a, just a, a, a little fun side project. Um, and, and I was interviewing a lot of my friends initially, uh, very design-oriented. I would say it was designers talking about design, so what I would consider now very inside baseball. And then over the years, as I continued to do it, um, I, I began to evolve in the kinds of people that I wanted to speak to in that I really wanted to talk to any kind of creative mind, whether they be musicians or artists or writers or scientists or business executives, anybody that was making something. They could be making a business. They could be making a scientific theorem. They could be making a piece of music, a play, uh, a piece of art, anybody that was creating something from nothing. And my endless fascination really is about how people create the lives that they have. So how do you design who you are and who you want to be? And and that's something that I think has been a, a, a really a thread throughout, but more prominent, say, in the last 10 years. Agreed. Agreed. So let's talk a bit. Uh, again, doing my research and my due diligence, it was fascinating for me to read about brand. This is your work on brand and specifically on technology and devices. And you have some very specific ideas about why we are not addicted to our technology devices because of the device itself, but the feelings that we get using those devices. Would you share more? Well, this really was something that I began thinking about back in 2001, after the iPod was first introduced. And if you look at a lot of the media from 2001 until the end of 2004, you can see a lot of the headlines were about how we were now, because of the iPod, living in this, what was being considered this isolation nation, and, and how we were essentially doomed um, because of this very insular way of living and being and sort of curating our own entertainment through the iPod. And then what happened in 2005 and 2006 was the introduction of MySpace. Mm. And suddenly it became the most visited website on the planet. I mean, this was a site that surpassed Google in the number of web visits that year in, in that time frame from 2005, 2006. And 
it was rather extraordinary the growth that occurred in this way of communicating. And it's continued. We've seen that with the advent of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Vine and TikTok. And what we're really doing in in these environments is connecting with others. And that feeling that we have, that dopamine hit that we get from assurance or being liked or being followed or being wanted, all of those things literally and figuratively create a scenario where we're really addicted to the feelings that we have that are facilitated by the device. It's not um, the device itself in the way that we would, uh, I'll use a cigarette as an example. It's not the cigarette we're addicted to, it's the nicotine. Uh, we also uh. might have the the sensation of, of back when I smoked, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago now, you know, the inhaling and the exhaling and the ritual was all part of it. But at the end of the day, the physiological withdrawal that I had was really very much about the nicotine. Fascinating. Fascinating. You know, I, I chuckle when I heard you say MySpace because some of our younger audiences probably won't even know what that is, but it was the precursor to Facebook. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When I talk about this in in various lectures, I always say, you know, I talk about MySpace and then I pause and say, anybody remember MySpace? <laughs> yeah. You know, today's Gen Zers were like four or five when it first launched. Right. Exactly. So let's let's talk a bit about brand because you write and and talk through all these amazing interviews about how we like or dislike brands and is there is there magic that makes us excited about a product or a service or is it all orchestrated by marketers? Well, brands don't exist naturally. If you were to, uh, if an alien were to land on this planet 20,000 years ago, they wouldn't be able to find brands. Brands are a construct that humans create, and we create symbols and visual language uh, to surround that construct in an effort to make it recognizable. And then we create consensus in the way that we market that construct and whether people do or don't believe in what you're sharing with them. So so brands don't exist naturally. We create brands. Brands don't have a soul. They don't have, um, they don't breathe. They don't have a heartbeat. We might imbue those things into them. We might anthropomorphize them into brands, but they don't exist naturally like that. They're all constructs that we've made. And the same constructs that we make for sneakers or cigarettes or beer or shoes or devices is the very same construct that we have when we've created symbology and places of worship for our religions. Yeah, fascinating. Debbie, we'll be right back after a quick break. Your working life is powered by your stories. We want to hear more from our listeners about your experiences in the workplace. Tell us what challenges you've overcome or tips you've learned along the way. And even better, if you don't have the answers, let us know what issues you want to know more about. We want this podcast to serve all of your working life needs. Send me an email at caroline at carolinedoubthiggins.com. So what I'm what I'm hearing is that branding is connected with our our hardwiring, our our basic instinct. Is that Oh, I would say absolutely. I mean, if we look back 
at the great leap forward, which in in our history is the moment that we became our sort of modern. Excuse me, I'm sorry. That's if okay. we look back to our history and we we look back to the great leap forward, which occurred um, when we really became the more modern creatures that we are now, the Homo sapiens that have a triune brain, that the neocortex, the mammalian brain, and the reptilian brain. One of the first activities that we engaged in was drawing on on the caves on the cave walls. We can see that at Lascaux. We see caves now that are even older than Lascaux. And what we were doing at that time was literally recording our experiences on these cave walls. We were documenting our reality. I don't think it is a coincidence that this was positioned in a very similar manner with our recording our reality on the walls of Facebook. Um, and so the very one of the very first more social activities that humans engaged in was this way of communicating. And we are social animals. We do not thrive when we don't have uh, anyone to care for us when we're very young. All of the scientific experiments that Harry Harlow and, and um, Mr. Melby did with, uh, with monkeys showed that human babies would not thrive if they weren't taken care of by a caretaker, mother, father, both. Um, In fact, when we don't have that physical contact, we could actually die in, in not having that. Yeah, yeah. So the past two and ongoing years, because we're still uh, dealing with a a global pandemic, some say it's now morphing into an endemic, happily, uh, has really changed everything globally. How has that overlay of a global pandemic impacted design? Well, because we're doing so much more of our shopping online, obviously, we don't have the same kind of physical interaction with how a melon might smell or how it feels or what the fabric is of a piece of clothing or how well a shoe might fit. It's really hard to buy shoes when you can't put your foot in them and make sure it feels good. Um, So those are just sort of very tactical, tangible issues. But the isolation that we feel in not being able to have those dinners with friends and and holidays with families, that's taken a real emotional toll on how we construct and design our lives. And that's, I think, much more troubling than our relationship with brands and products and things. And, and I know the interviews in the book really span a, a significant time frame, so not all of them are, are brand new, as you referenced. In any of your conversations, whether they're in the book or, or with others, do you have you heard kind of a, um, a cry for a need for creativity during the, the heart of lockdown and, and how pandemic has really increased loneliness and lack of connectivity for, for obvious reasons? Well, I think that creativity is really necessary for any life. And if we are cut off from our innate creativity, which we seem very um, regularly to be born with, this is not something that is only given to a few people. Kids are born and they want to make things and they play and they create stories and they engage with various ways of learning that include playing. We've seen that when you play and create, your brain actually has more activity and grows in a more healthy manner. Um, It's only when we're a little bit older that 
we tend to cut ourselves off from that creativity as we begin to become more conscious of other people's creativity. And then we begin to compare and judge. And when we see that somebody might be able to do something a little bit more easily than we can, we tend to then feel insecure. And unfortunately, what one of the responses to that is, is to stop doing it. Uh, Um, And so I think that not being creative or not allowing oneself to fully understand how much creativity helps us process the world is is really one of one of the great tragedies of our overproductive um busy at all costs mentality I don't want to be trite and ask you for one of your favorite experiences interviewing one of these celebrities because it must be impossible to pick one. But I want to give you an open-ended opportunity to share perhaps a learning moment for you from one of the folks that are that are featured in the book. What was an aha moment that you might want to share with this global audience? Uh, I can share two because I okay. think that, and I'll, I'll try to be succinct. <laughs> um, the first is... Um, the realization, the very real realization that every creative person that I've spoken to, except for maybe two, and I'll talk about why those two are outliers in a moment, but every creative person I talk to is still searching. Mm -hmm. They're still hoping to find more, experience more, express more, make more. Um, There's not been any, any creative thinker that's been like, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm good with what I've done. My life works is, is, is complete. <laughs> I'm done, um, right? <laughs> yeah. The, the only two people that I ever felt were just okay as is, still interested in making things, but not questioning their intent so much, were Massimo Vignelli and Milton Glaser. And they were both well into their 80s when I interviewed them. And so I'm hoping that that just meant that they had, you know, less Fs to give, if you know what I mean. So, <laughs> so for, for anybody that's, that's struggling and and really examining their practice and wanting more and, and, and wanting to investigate deeper. That's just, I think, very much a part of the process of being a really good artist. So that's the first thing. And then the second is something that I actually learned from David Lee Roth. And this has become my go-to answer when people ask me this question, because it was that profound. Uh, David Lee Roth was the former frontman of a very, very popular band in the 1980s called Van Halen. Um, Eddie Van Halen, the lead guitarist, died last year. And I know that the whole world seemed to be mourning. So I think people will know who I'm talking about. David Lee Roth was the jester frontman. And in the mid, early to mid eighties, uh, Van Halen was on a run. They were the, one of the most popular bands on the planet. They had one of the most popular rock and roll tours, the most popular video. They were everywhere and were loved and adored. And when I interviewed David a couple of years ago, I asked him what that felt like. What did it feel like to be so, so popular? You're the most popular dude on the planet. And he paused and he was very reflective and he said that you have to be really careful when you get to the tallest mountain in all of creation. Because when you get to that top and you look out, it's always cold, you're usually alone, and there's only one direction to go. And it made me very aware of how today's 
makers and thinkers seemed to be in such a rush to the top of the mountain. And it gave me this sense that it was absolutely okay to take your own time in your own way to do the things that you want to do. And frankly, made me really hope that I wouldn't peak, you know, until the day before I died. (laughs) So I, I think that that can be comforting to people in knowing that not everybody makes it to the top. But when you do, there is always a reckoning about where you're going to go from there. Yeah. Oh, what a great story. Debbie, I enjoyed our time together today. I love the book. It's gorgeous in every way, shape, and form. It is a a piece of art. It is a great uh, read, but it's beautiful to look at. I am so excited for you on this continuing journey. And thank you for spending time with me today. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I want to tell our listeners how they can buy your book. It is called Why Design Matters, Conversations with the World's Most Creative People. And of course, it is available on Amazon and all major book retailers. But I would be remiss if I did not point you to Debbie's awesome website, DebbieMillman.com. And Debbie is spelled D-E-B-B-I-E-M-I-L-L-M-A-N. Debbie, take good care. Thank you. Thank you so much. And if you like the show, subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or SoundCloud, and even better, leave a review because this helps new listeners find us online. And let me know what career-minded issues you would like for me to feature on a future show. You can find me on Twitter at C. Dowd Higgins. And a special thanks to my podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, Executive Producer. Thank you for making this show awesome for our global audience. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. Thanks for listening.